Good evening, and welcome to the April 2018 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, if you watched the Winter Olympics this year or have been following our news feeds, then you're already familiar with Adam Rippon. He's an ice skater and was one of the two out gay athletes who represented the United States this year. He came home with a bronze medal and has taken the gay community by storm. Adam made headlines from the beginning of the Games when he declined a meeting with Vice President Mike Pence. He's with us tonight to share more about his story and his experience competing in the Olympics. And in the second half of our hour, I talk with actress and author Tina Alexis Allen about her new memoir, Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. It is an amazing book, I gotta tell you. I just couldn't put it down while I was reading it. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, April 22nd, 2018. This is Greg Morali with your Alpi Radio News for the week of April 22, 2018. The death of First Lady Barbara Bush last week is a reminder that the Republican Party once had a more socially liberal side. Even though her husband extended Ronald Reagan's legacy of cultural conservatism, there were signs that Barbara was sometimes a dissenter. The most famous incident came in 1990 when the then PFLAG president, Paulette Goodman, sent First Lady Bush a request for a letter of support. Whether Goodman seriously expected a reply is unclear, but amazingly, Barbara Bush sent a personal response. It read, quote, I firmly believe that we cannot tolerate discrimination against any individuals or groups in our country. Such treatment always brings with it pain and perpetuates intolerance, end quote. And here in California, Assemblymember Evan Lowe introduced Assembly Bill 2504, which proposes a requirement that all law enforcement officers and dispatchers receive training on sexual orientation and gender identity. The bill specifies the training must include training on how to respond to domestic violence and hate crimes involving LGBTQ victims, as well as an overview of LGBTQ history and how race and religion relate to sexual orientation and gender identity. LGBTQ law enforcement employees continue to experience harassment and discrimination on the job. Hate crimes motivated by sexual orientation and gender identity are on the rise here in California. Yours truly testified in support of the bill. Unfortunately, the California Sheriff's Association spoke out in opposition to the bill, claiming concerns about cost. The truth is that training courses addressing these requirements already exist and can be funded by the community college system with little or no additional expense. The bill, which was approved last week by the Assembly Public Safety Committee, moves on to the Appropriations Committee. A similar bill, Assembly Bill 2153, is moving through the legislature and proposes similar training on LGBTQ issues for teachers of 7th through 12th grade. Both bills are being sponsored by Equality California. And here locally, Santa Rosa Gaydar invites you to Wine and Friends that will be taking place at the Sunset Winery and Vineyards. Sunset means sun in Croatian and is located on Olivet Road west of Santa Rosa in Sonoma County. Join them for an afternoon of private barrel tasting, a game of bocce, a round of ping pong, or test your taste buds with a blind tasting game. It all happens on Sunday, May 20th at 1 p.m. And finally, the Sonoma County Pride Planning Committee invites everyone interested in helping to plan and present this year's Pride Celebration, happening June 1st through the 3rd in downtown Santa Rosa, to attend one of the upcoming planning meetings happening at 6 p.m. at Emeritus Hall on the Santa Rosa JC campus on April 25th, May 9th, and May 23rd. You can learn more about these meetings and how to get involved at sonomacountypride.org. 
And for all your 2018 Pride celebration information, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. We have everything you need in one place. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For OutBeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. If you watched the Winter Olympics this year or just followed Olympic news, the name Adam Rippon should be a familiar one. The 28-year-old skater took a bronze medal in his Olympic debut, but definitely earned a gold for the speed at which he became a role model. He's taken America's gay community by storm, and he's here with us tonight to share more of his story. Adam, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure to have you on the show, and I know that you're really busy right now getting ready for Stars on Ice, but I got to tell you, you have really taken America by storm. I mean, I see you everywhere on every show, on every magazine cover. It's hard for me to believe that any of our listeners don't already know your story, but maybe for those who few who don't, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like for you. You know... I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, and I struggled a lot with who I was for a very long time. Um, As I've gotten older, I was really lucky to surround myself with a lot of really incredible people who really helped me to realize that they loved me for me, and it didn't matter if I was gay or straight or where I had come from, that um, they they liked me and and their... um, you know, what, how they valued me was how I treated others and the and my work ethic. Um, I always felt like it was important for me to share my story because I wanted to be a role model for that young kid who I was um, when I didn't you know know if being me would be okay or accepted. And um, it still feels odd to be considered, like, a role model and to get all of the, these messages from so many people from um, around the country, so many different ages, um, thanking me for um, being a voice for the LGBTQ community. Because I, I, you know, I've only just been myself through this um, entire, like, Olympic process and... Um, I think I didn't realize um, how powerful it could be to just be you. Right. Well, living your authentic self, I mean, that's really where all the power comes from, right? Truly. And I've gotten so many messages from people who are, you know, um, all throughout the spectrum of gay to straight. Um, Because I think that, like, throughout the human experience, that um, on some level we've all felt, um, you know, that people might, judge us or uh, not like us for the things that we have passions for or, you know, just might not like us for who we are. So I think, um, you know, it's a good reminder that it's, you always, you just have the best time, um, you know, through life if you're really being authentic to who you are. Oh, amen to that. Well, talk about where your passion for skating came from. Was this something that's always been part of your life? Well, like I said, I am from a small town in Pennsylvania, and one of the things that we love to do is go skating in the wintertime. We have really cold winters, and I can remember so many um, you know, times when we would go out and we would go skating outside. And finally, one year, I kept asking my mom over and over and over to bring me to the rink. I am 
uh, born in November. So as a birthday present, my mom signed me up for the group classes, and then the rest is sort of history. Wow. So were you just sort of a natural, or did you undergo some some individual intense training? <laughs> well, I was. I first started skating um, in the Scranton area, and then um, that took me to skating in Philadelphia, uh, in a few other big cities, and then I've been training and living in Los Angeles for the past five years now. Okay. So as you began to compete more professionally, um, obviously there's a lot of stereotypes around gay athletes. Uh, what obstacles did you run into? Was your sexual orientation ever something that got in the way for you? Um, you know, when I was young, I was teased for being a skater all the time. And um, I think that, um, you know, being gay and in sports, sometimes there, there's the stereotype that you're not a fighter and you're weak. But I'm neither. And I think that I have had to prove to myself many times how strong I am because I think that, you know, on some level, we all doubt how strong we really are. But when we put those doubts behind us, it's really when we push ourselves to, you know, our highest limits. We don't, you know, worry about what the stereotypes are. We don't worry about what other people think. It doesn't matter. So many people are so worried about what other people think of them that they're not even worried about you. So, you know what? Put it behind you and and go out and give 100% because then no matter what happens, you'll always come away and be satisfied. Yes, I think that's great advice for any aspect of life for sure. So let's talk about the Olympics. Was that something that was always on your radar and always a goal for you? Hell yeah. I remember when I was young, uh, the only thing I wanted to do was go to the Olympics. And, you know, it was, you know, something that I actually had to come to terms with that might not happen. Um, I qualified um, for my first games at 28. I'm the oldest first-time qualifier in figure skating since the 1930s. So it's, you know, really, um, you know, the the stats didn't look good for me. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things where I felt like I could do it, and I felt like I was ready to have that Olympic moment, and I had the best, the best last few seasons of my career, and it all culminated into a really great Olympics for me. Oh, that's so great. Good for you. Though I have to tell you that hearing that 28 years old is too old for anything is a bit disturbing. Well, you know what? It was disturbing to me, and I still did it. So let's keep it going for the the ultimate. Yes, yes. Good for you. Good for you. So as you started thinking about and planning for the Olympics, I mean, I've got to imagine there's so much that goes into just getting ready for the games, getting yourself mentally prepared for competition, getting your body ready, training. But you also had to consider whether or not you were going to be out, visibly out as a gay man during the competition. Was that something you always planned on doing? Um, No, I mean, for a while, I just you know, was only out to my friends and to my family. Um, but I always thought it was important for me to come out while I was competing to show, you know, young kids that they could be who they were. And that, you know, for me, when I came out, that's when I had the best um, season of my career. Because in skating, you only have four minutes to show the judges who you are and what you're made of. And don't really know who you are without representing yourself. It's hard to do that. Um, I'm somebody who wears, like, my heart on my sleeve, and I say what's on my mind. So if I'm not being myself through that process, it 
it's it, I feel such a disconnect to what I'm doing. So it was really important to me as an athlete. And, um, you know, even further than that, I'm the oldest of six kids, so I always have felt like a big brother and like a role model Mm. of some sort. Awesome. Well, that's great. Well, there's always a political aspect to every Olympic Games, and you kind of found yourself right in the middle of it. Talk about how your fellow athletes reacted when you told the vice president, Mike Pence, you were not going to talk with him, as is typically the custom uh, during the competition, um, I you know I was you know, incredibly lucky. The skaters that I've grown up with are incredible friends of mine. We've known each other for you know more than ten years at this point, and um, you know what they they were supportive of my decision. They're my friends, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I was asked a lot about uh, Mike Pence during the games, and I you know did my best to um, not have a distract from, you know, my teammates' Olympic experience. But it's in, I thought it was an important decision. It's something I stand by. Um, I think that his, uh, Mike Pence's, you know, LGBTQ track record is terrible. And um, I, uh, I'm obviously not a huge fan. Well, I think there's a lot of people in our community and a lot of our listeners who are probably right there with you. So I really applaud you for standing up for what you believe is right and not giving in to the tradition. Thank you. So in the last few years, in the last few Olympic Games, the Olympic Committee has been much more vocal about being inclusive and accepting of LGBT people. But sometimes what we hear on the outside isn't reality on the inside. Talk about your experience in the Olympic Village and with the other athletes. Did you feel welcome? You know, one thing that I really love about sports is that if you leave it on the ice, if you leave it on the field, um, and you've done your best, your peers will respect you. Um, And that's what I really love about sports. It's about, you know, what you bring to your sport, um, how hard did you work, and um, that's, you know, how you should be judged and how you should be, um, and that's how you should try to get respect from your peers and your competitors. And, and, um, I felt incredibly welcomed. Um, you know, I've been an athlete for the past 28 years of my life. And, um, while I was at the games, I felt like, you know, I, I was with, you know, people who had lived and breathed this, the same dreams and goals that I have for, you know, my entire life until that point. Great. Well, you became a medal winner pretty early on in the games. Um, And unlike some of the athletes who left right away, you stayed for the entire experience. As you look back on those two weeks, is there any one or two moments that stood out to you as being extraordinary? Um, You know, I'll never forget standing on the Olympic podium with my friends. Um, And I will never forget walking in the opening ceremonies and walking out after they say the United States of America, and you walk out with not only people who you've known your entire, you know, athletic career, but people you've just met. Um, And it's just a surreal and incredible experience. It was one I was waiting for my entire life. How very cool. Well, something that you'll never forget, that's for sure. And there was a lot of publicity and a lot of things going on during those two weeks beyond just what happened on the ice, even some matchmaking. Uh, Talk about Sally Fields trying to connect you with her son. Um, so, uh, Sally Fields wrote to me on Twitter, um, and shared an exchange she had with her son, um, where she, um, tried to get us to get together 
And um, we actually did meet up at an um, at an event we were both at, and we met. And the first thing he said was, "I'm so sorry about my mom." And we laughed about it. And you know, um, her son Sam, he's a great guy, and um, I think that we're definitely friends now. Well, that's really great. Well, since you've been back from the Olympics, you have been on just about every talk show that I've seen. And I saw one of the first interviews you did on The Ellen Show. Let's listen to part of your conversation with Ellen. Well, congratulations. I'm so happy to meet you. Uh, immediately, I was like, I hope we have him on the show because I just think you have the greatest personality. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like you have the greatest personality as well. Well, thank you. So I'm so glad. This is off to a great start. It is. It's a, it's a great start. Hey, can we uh, talk about the fact that uh, that so many people think you should have won the gold for your individual skating? I, and I... You know, what do you feel, Ellen? Yes, I know I'm my like mother's favorite skater, and the only thing I regret about the Olympics is that I feel like the judges didn't fully take that into consideration. I see. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do. I do. But I've had so many like gold medal moments, like. Right now, <laughs> I've been wanting to be like on this show and meet you since I was born 28 years ago. So maybe for 27 of them at least, uh -huh, uh -huh. I've been wanting to be here. So this is, this is it. And, you know, you're really a funny guy, uh, <laughs> which is really fun. I mean, it's really fun to get to know you in that way. What's that, what's that visibility in public been like now, post-Olympics? Um, you know, it's just been really fun. I think there's a lot of open doors right now, and um, I'm trying to walk through all of them to figure out what I want my next step to be. I'm trying to figure out what I really like doing and what, what are my passions. And, um, you know, I do have a passion for comedy, and I um, love to make people laugh. I think I've always been sort of a performer at heart, so it feels, you know, totally like home to me. Well, I'd say you're quite a natural at it, that's for sure. And you've also been involved in a lot of activism already. Um, you're involved with GLAAD and an LGBT youth project. Tell us about that. Um, you know, I'm working with um, GLAAD's youth um, engagement program, and these kids from different communities come together, and GLAAD helps give them the tools to go back to their community and become activists and help make change in their um, in their towns. And you know what? If I had somebody like that growing up, um, you know, my world would have been different. These kids are amazing. They, they go back and they really give back so much. Sounds like a great program, and they're so lucky to have you involved, that's for sure. So talk about what's in the future for you in LGBT activism. Do you see yourself getting more involved in the community? You know, I want to continue to be a role model, and, um, you know, what I've what, how do I see, uh, you know, me being a role model is I, I want to stay true to who I am because I think that throughout the Olympics, I didn't realize that so many people struggled um, just being themselves. And um, I, you know, I've been having the best time truly just being me. And uh, that's the message that I want to send that, you know, if you're just yourself and you treat people the way you want to be treated, um, you're you know, kind to the people that you run into and who you meet. That, that's what truly matters, and that's how you kind of live your best life. Well, that's such great advice, especially for all those LGBT athletes out there who are still struggling just, you know, to be themselves. 
Yeah. So you're busy now on tour with Stars on Ice. You have two performances coming up here in California, first on May 12th in Anaheim, and then again on May 13th right here in San Jose at the SAP Arena. But where can people go to follow you online? Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is A-D-A-R-I-P-P. It's Adarip. And um, I'll be posting every week um, what cities will be in that weekend. And uh, if you want to get any information on the shows, you can go to starsonice.com. We're going to 22 different cities across the nation. And um, I know I'm looking forward to those California dates so that I'll be able to perform for my friends. Um, and I'll also be looking forward to our Hershey and Allentown, Pennsylvania dates, where I'll be able to perform for my friends. So we have an incredible cast. We have world champions, Olympic champions, and medalists all across the board. And um, it's going to be an incredible show. We're just coming back from the Olympics, and we're in the best shape of our lives, and we are ready to kind of let loose, come together, and put on a really great show. Fantastic. Well, this is a great opportunity for our listeners to get out and see you perform in person at the SAP Arena on May 13th. That's right down in the South Bay in San Jose. Adam, congratulations on all of your success. We wish you the best moving forward and look forward to seeing you and all that you're going to bring. Oh, Greg, thanks so much. Thanks for talking with me. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Morelia. My next guest is an actress, playwright, and author of her new memoir titled Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. It is a fascinating story that reads more like a fictional mystery, but the story's all true. And here to share more about her life and this new book is Tina Alexis Allen. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Great to have you here and to talk about this fascinating book that you've written, a memoir uh, that reads very much like an incredible fictional story. And I guess that's one of the things that makes it really exciting as a memoir. So many people said that to me. Um, I've been getting all kinds of uh, response to the book. Um, Fortunately, mostly positive, all positive, really. Um, And um, yeah, there's been a lot of that sort of review. Like if if I didn't, if if it wasn't uh, true, I'd absolutely think it was fiction. And um, I think, yeah, my life is just really stranger than fiction and complicated and um uh the other thing people seem to be saying is is that they're not able to put it down and so i think that's a testament to it feeling like fiction (laughs) well well as an author that's like the ultimate compliment right i mean you don't want people to put your writing down talk about what motivated you to write well i have kind of always known i think that i was going to write a book i think you know when you live a life uh, like mine as a kid, assuming you survive it <laughs> and you <laughs> land on your feet, I kind of feel almost an obligation to give back, to shine some light for other people where they might still be stuck. Um, maybe some people going through their own, you know, challenging times, dark times, shameful times about things they've done or are doing. Um, and so I think that it was just a culmination of time, of healing, of being on the right side of the story and not being of it. And then, you know, just being of this age that, you know, I think it's now time uh, for me to give back. Did you find it a healing process for you to go through and relive all of that, but then to get it all in sort of a chronological order and in print and... 
a lot of people ask me that question, you know, was it must be cathartic after they read it, or it must be, you know, uh, was it healing? And of course, I, uh, how could it not help me move forward uh, by reclaiming it in a new way, in a creative way? But that said, I've been working with my own life story in different kinds of creative platforms since I became an actor. And so I've written a few solo shows that I've performed playing different characters, um, including my father off Broadway uh, six years ago. So in some ways, that was actually maybe more of a healing process playing him uh, than necessarily the book was, because it just brought me into a space of like really holding him as a human being, Mm -hmm. uh, almost as a character instead of, hey, that's my dad and all the baggage that goes with that. So I think that process actually might have been even more freeing to have completed that. Good for you. Well, I I connected with a story almost from the beginning. I, Mm. too, grew up in a Catholic household. Did you? Uh, Yes. Uh Uh, In a very, I I don't know that I would describe it as ultra conservative, but it was very devout. And I was an altar boy and the whole bit. Wow. Um, But what was very different about your story is you had a huge family. Yes. The youngest of 13. Yes. I I couldn't believe that. I had to actually go back and look at that again. 13. I can't imagine. I only had one (laughs) sister and that seemed like a lot. Wow. Yes. Well, uh, I have seven sisters and five brothers, so it was very busy. (laughs) It was very crowded. Although we had a huge house uh, by any standard, it was big, but you still, there's 15 people living there. Um, You know, I'm the youngest. A lot of my older siblings moved out. Uh, My parents had 13 kids in 15 years. Uh, That's how devout they were. Wow. Um, so no birth control in that, uh, in that department, but, um, yeah, it, it was filled, you know, with, with chaos and love and fun and, you know, singing and, uh, trauma and, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's, um, I always look at my family now sort of as a microcosm of the Catholic church, you know, Mm -hmm. for all its lightness, there is sometimes, um, you know, intensely dark things that we now know, uh, some we don't know. Um, but mm-hmm. I imagine there's, you know, we, we hold both of those and my family does too. Yeah. And some we're finding out still every day. Yes. Every day. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about the messaging you got. I mean, obviously you went to church regularly Yes. and, and growing up, um, as you began to realize who you are, talk about some of the messaging that you remember hearing from the pulpit. Well, I definitely remember, um, you know, I remember sin, you know, that the concept of, of sin and what that was. I remember clearly the Ten Commandments. I went to Catholic school uh, all through my life, um, even, you know, even college, even graduate school. So starting from, from grade school. So I was, you know, immersed in it at home and I was also, you know, in a, in Catholic uh, schools. Mm-hmm. So I heard it at the pulpit and in religion class and everything else. And I guess the messaging, the messaging overall, um, that, that, that didn't sit with me. Uh, of course there is beautiful things about, uh, Catholicism, but the thing that, that didn't work for me was sort of a, a a hypocrisy that I actually was coming to see in terms of, you know, do as I say, not as I do. You know, there were a lot of priests, nuns that would come to our house, um, 
you know, they're, they're human beings, which is, which is what they're supposed to be. But sometimes the behavior or drinking or, you know, so I, I saw sort of that side of it. And of course, more specifically and more impactful was my dad. Right. Uh, who lived a contradictory life, to say the least, which I explore. That is the heart of the book, is my dad coming out to me at a young age and um, and keep me keeping it a secret, amongst other things. So I think the, the hypocrisy of that, but, but learning things young and then seeing as I was getting into my teens and early 20s that, you know, things aren't what they seem, you know, it... it it gave me pause, certainly, and I, I I didn't really embrace the church fully, I think, at that point for that reason. It was hard for me to consolidate it. So at what age did you begin to realize who you were and, and identify as a lesbian? Yeah. Um, well, I actually dated, you know, guys and girls, um, but I also was sexualized very young, which I talk about in the book. Um, it's not you know, the heart of the book, but it, but it is contextually there in an important context for who I was being at 18, um, in my early twenties. But, um, having been both sexualized by men and women at too young of an age, um, it left me, uh, in a way open, if you will, uh, confused and yes, harmed that, uh, but aside from that, you asked me about identity. I think I was very open from a very young age, uh, to being with a man or a woman. So I don't really, um, I, I really have come to a place in my life where I realized that, um, I could be with a man. I could be with a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's more the human being that I think I'm attracted to. But I think by the time I was in my teens, I was very clear. I was attracted to women and I was with women. You know, I, I had dated guys too and was dating, but, but my relationships primarily were with, with women. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, you know, in my teens, you know, I was, I was clear about that, that, that I was open to being with either. Right, right. So let's talk about your father. Again, yeah. as you mentioned, he's a dominant figure, obviously, in this story. And, yes. and also intriguing as well, because he was very involved, very devout uh, as a member of the Catholic Church. Talk about his involvement there. It's, it's much more than just going to church every Sunday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, my dad, a um, uh, couple things. One is he was going to be a priest, I think, at one time in his life. When, before he met my mother, he was seriously considering that. So if you were to have met him, he's passed now, as my mother is as well. But if you were to have met him, you would have been, wow, this guy is like one of the holiest guys I know. You know, he just carried himself really almost like a priest. He was knighted by the pope as was my mother for the devotion that they had to the Holy Land and to, uh, you know, basically the propagation of the faith. And, um, um, you know, he was a guy who led us in the rosary every night and went to mass every morning. He also, uh, as I talk about in the book, and I don't want to give too many spoilers, but what I came to learn when he shared his personal secret about his sexuality with me at 18, I got to be his confidant and his buddy, if you will, his, his running buddy, as they say. And, uh, in the midst of that, I started to learn that his connections to the Vatican were much deeper and more complicated, um, than just a guy who had a few, you know, friends at the Vatican. I started to learn that, uh, see things like a briefcase of cash and passports and a lot of things get, uh, unraveled, um, 
which again, I don't want to say too much about, but it is his secret about his sexuality is absolutely just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, I think it's in chapter three. So <laughs> the book goes 50 miles an hour um, faster every page from that point on. It gets deeper and more complex and more mysterious. Well, no kidding. I mean, I've read, I've read some, I've read some, you know, some stories that are part fiction about the Catholic Church and all the intrigue there. And, and frankly, it has always interested me. And uh, it is a very secretive society. Absolutely. I mean, that's the challenge um, of getting full disclosure. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't happen. In fact, one of, I don't know if, if many of your listeners will know this, um, that are or aren't Catholic, but it's pretty fascinating. The Catholic Church has what they call the secret archives. Uh, those are archives that um, if you're a scholar, um, maybe an author or just doing historical research, what have you, a professor, you, you can request access to the secret archives. That is the name of them. However, you what's in those secret archives um, is sort of withheld, say, about 90, 70 to 90 years back. In other words, right now, uh, the only information, the most recent information you could have if you were going to get permission to go in there would be about 100 years old. And what they do is they hold back all of the papers, all of the documents from a papacy uh, between 70 to 100 years. And basically what that does is everybody's gone. Right. There's no accountability. So even if something were to slip out, even if someone were to put something together, there is absolutely no accountability because everyone's dead. Interesting. So, I mean, just just that fact alone sort of is sort of the modus operandi uh, for the Vatican. And look, they do – the Catholic Church does a lot of good in the world. So I'm, I'm not here to be a basher. I'm just talking Certainly. about secretly. Certainly. And there is a lot of it. Well, and there's a huge difference between, I think, the hierarchical structure in Rome and the good work that goes on in local dioceses all over the world. Absolutely. Um, so I, Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. But, you know, I'm intrigued by this relationship with the Pope. I mean, right. there's a lot of devout people that go to church every day um, yeah. and say the rosary every night. And he yeah. and your mom were both knighted by the Pope. I didn't know popes did that, for one thing. Um, it's, there's, there's different, um, sort of honorary organizations, um, way back when during the middle ages, the Knights Templar, uh, was the, were the, were knights, you know, um, that basically protected Jesus's tomb and other holy sites on horseback. So we've all heard of the Knights and, uh, I think Lancelot and all of that. <laughs> um, so basically this is a modern day version, sort of if you speed it up thousands of years, you've got the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, there's all kinds of different uh, honorary, and the Pope is essentially knighting uh, people who have done good work. So they're not on horseback protecting Jerusalem, but they are doing things to uh, hold the the value and the sanctity of Catholicism, particularly in Jerusalem. Yeah. And my parents did a lot of work there. My father, that's actually where they met. They actually met in the Holy Land. Um, uh, they both were in World War II. And yeah, I think my father's connection to the Vatican probably started there. He was in Palestine and he had a lot of connections and he was in the war office. He was actually a British soldier in the war office, which is all about, you know, moving information. That's what the war office essentially does, you mm -hmm. know, 
So all that sort of courier transcribing, moving information, I think that was sort of his foundation for the secret work that he would later do for the Vatican. Yeah. Well, in any way you slice it, it's a wonderful honor for both of your parents, that's for sure. Yes, and they're buried on the Mount of Olives. Yeah, yeah. Which is a which is a big deal. It yeah. is a it's a huge <laughs> a huge deal. And then, again, something very interesting uh, to read in the book. So let's go back to your coming out. Our listeners yeah. are always interested in in those stories and yours was, yes. you know, again, quite extraordinary. Talk about how your father found out and what happened without giving well, too much away. Of course, uh, it's on the back cover. You may be able to, uh, so I'll, I'll, I can include this this uh, piece of it. But yeah, uh, my dad was a, a strict disciplinarian. Um, in addition to the other things I've said about him, he was kind of scary, and I didn't really, uh, I didn't really like him very much, to be frank. Um, and when I was about eighteen, he had come to one of my basketball games. I was on scholarship playing. Um, you know, NCAA basketball. And he came to a game and decided he was going to send me uh, on a trip. You know, he was a travel agent. So he said, I'll send you on a trip as a sort of thank you for my full scholarship and this and that. And I asked if I could bring a friend. And at that point, I had been with a woman for a couple of years, uh, had been with other women before that. Uh, I was 18. She was quite a bit older, 12 years. We went to dinner. And as we sat down and had a few drinks, he proceeded to say that he knew we were together. And that really shook me in my boots because of all people, I didn't, I wasn't out to my family. I was not out at school. I was, uh, you know, deeply, uh, this is the eighties, right? So it's not, it's not 2018. So still scary and still a big deal. Anyway, um, we both sort of choked on our pasta or whatever we were having. And then, <laughs> and then uh, he proceeded to say, I buried my lover in the war and his name was Omar. Wow. That must have just completely thrown you for a loop. Oh my God. I mean, I, you know, when I tell you now, I'm still sort of, you know, remembering how nerve wracking and shocked and, you know, in a way exhilarated, but, but not necessarily all in a good way. Just, just, high level of, uh, intensity and shock. And then the challenging part was I sort of went from being my, you know, sort of not really being close with my dad, not even really feeling like I had a dad who was very present or what I thought cared about me. That was my interpretation to a guy who I, you know, just thought I was, you know, now the apple of his eye. And, you know, the, 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 the sun shone, you know, shined on me kind of thing where now everything about us was different. We carried each other's secret. We started traveling, you know, the world, we went to clubs, we did drugs, we drank a lot. I mean, not a lot of drugging, but, but I'd say more, you know, poppers, we all know about that dance floor business. (laughs) Well, maybe some of you don't, but that might not be a bad thing, but yeah, we got pretty crazy. So we, we dive into that in hiding out, that's for sure. Yeah, and what's interesting is that I think a lot of people will feel some some connection with that. Um, we've had people on the show before talk about how they came out to their parents and their parents came out to them. Um, and people have talked about the role of alcohol and drugs and, and that whole thing too, but, but not all at the same time and in the same story, <laughs> right? 
I know, I know. I, I mean, know it's it's, uh, it's a ride, people. It's a ride. But I mean, it's it's you're, it's you're one, gonna want to take it. <laughs> yes. Well, I know, and it's one thing certainly. And I'm just thinking about if I had sat down with my parents with a secret lover and they'd said, yeah, I know you're together, that would have been like stunning. But then also to hear at the same time, and I'm one of you too. Yeah. I don't even know. At the same dinner. At the same dinner. (laughs) At the same dinner. You know, just two bites apart. Yeah, exactly. Um, Pretty pretty much that. Did did you ever suspect growing up that he might be gay? Never. Although I do have a couple siblings that uh, I don't know that they that they suspected as much as maybe they were given a piece of information by someone. Uh, I know one of my sisters in particular. And, you know, we were, uh, as I said, you know, we were a culture of secrecy. So there were a lot of secrets in the house. And it makes perfect sense to me that my middle sister might have been said uh, this, you know, by a by a friend at probably around when she was about my age or, or so, and that she would have kept that secret, you know, because that's, that's the culture we lived in. You know, nobody was running saying this is happening to me or this is going on or, um, and, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons I've written such a transparent book. I, as you know, mm-hmm. I do not pull punches. I don't hold back. I think that, you know, I think story lives in detail. I think healing lives in detail. I think, our freedom as LGBT lives in our stories and the specificity. And I think shame isn't allowed to hide out when you share details. And so that's why I really go for it in this book. You know, I'm not, and plus I'm writing it from my first person voice as a young adult. I do not narrate the book as me. So what you're getting is who she was. And I really felt that was important to really step into this, the profound story that this is. Mm, yeah, because you there was a transformation that took place on at several different points in in your life. Uh, talk more about the role of drugs and alcohol. I mean, you obviously had a yeah. you developed a you had the groundwork for an amazing relationship, very unique relationship with your your dad. Now sharing this two unique pieces of who you are, uh, but but talk more about alcohol and drugs. Sure. Um, well, you know, I think for me because of. Uh, as I said, you know, I came of age at lightning speed as a child, uh, having to do a lot, handle a lot of adult level experiences and, and manage them. And I think for me, uh, I was definitely numbing a lot. Um, fortunately I had basketball, so that allowed a lot of stuff to get released, if you will, but you know, that didn't last forever. And as I got into my, you know, into this situation with my dad, I think the shock of it all, the managing of it, the holding of the secrets caused me to start to drink more, uh, and drug and also then, you know, start to hang around people. And then, you know how it is, you hang out at clubs, you meet people, people in the clubs, doing drugs, selling drugs, you know, all that, that world, you know? So I was, you know, getting more and more into that. And my dad, um, was a big drinker and I, I act, you know, an alcoholic, but, um, and he, you know, he, he really drank a lot. And so being with him, that was a big part of, of the shift that I had in my drinking because I was keeping up with him or trying to, I could never keep up with him. But, you know, I think that affected me too, not as an excuse, but that is the reality that, uh, traveling the world with him, you know, that we were always drinking, you know, going to underground clubs in Paris, you know, just crazy stuff, you know, and, um, it took me a long time, probably into my twenties to 
you know, where, where it got out of control. And I was just like, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore. And that actually affected our relationship because he never stopped drinking. Mm. And, um, you know, the booze probably, you know, was a bit of a buffer of certain things. And when that wasn't there, I saw clearer. Right. And then I had to deal with, you know, the other side of it, which you can imagine the other side of it. Well, it takes a lot of strength uh, to pull away from that on your own. Uh, what, you know, where did the motivation, where did the inspiration for you come from to step away from that life of, of alcohol and partying and clubs? Mm-hmm. Well, the irony is that I can say coming to New York probably you know, fast forwarded my party in because it's New York city and <laughs> it's the late eighties and, and, uh, and I'm now in my mid twenties. Um, so when I left my hometown, I came to New York for a job in fashion. Uh, and so getting away from home was a good thing coming to New York, you know, yes, my life got faster before it slowed down, but I think the, that coming to New York was a pivotal thing. Also getting into therapy uh, of many kinds, started to peel back the onion, started to realize that, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want this to be my future. You know, I Mm -hmm. could see it probably wasn't going to end well if I stayed on this path. The other thing that was very pivotal is that I decided to become an actor after a very fast and successful career in fashion in New York City, I, I sort of threw it all away. And I think part of the throwing it away or walking away, I should say, not throw it away. I walked away from a very successful career uh, in my very late 20s and decided to become an actor and pursue that. And it was kind of a shock to myself mm-hmm. <laughs> that, it, that that I was even going to do that. Uh, I almost don't can't tell you exactly where it came from, but I think it was a bit of divinity, frankly, um, that stepped in and said, maybe it's time to start paying attention to the inside. And, you know, being an actor, you have to know who you are. Sure. If you're gonna, at least if you're going to be a good actor. Sure, <laughs> sure. You got to like go inside and, you know, use yourself. So I had to know myself before I could use myself. So it was a real blessing. So I think those are the couple things that shifted me into a healthier uh, life, lifestyle and on the path, which the path was long. <laughs> And it never ends, but it was very long to right. heal all that stuff. Yeah. Well, good for you for doing it. Thank uh, you. How did your relationship with the church then evolve um, from that dinner yeah. to today? You know, I never, I, I would say that I probably went through some periods where, I mean, frankly, I was angry at everything uh, during certain time of that unraveling of, of, of all of that had had gone on. Um, so I'd say, you know, there were periods where I probably felt angry at the church. Um, certainly when the abuse uh, scandals started to unravel in Boston and right. then worldwide, uh, definitely frustration about that and feeling that it probably touched my family, even though um, I don't, I, I, I can't say a thousand percent sure, um, but I can say pretty sure that that world was affecting my family in various mm. ways and did affect others in my family. Um, so I think it, 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 the, the anger about that, you know, I don't, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Um, I have deep faith. Um, I pray, I meditate. I wouldn't be, uh, you know, I was in St. Patrick's the other day, lighting some candles, um, not for a mass, but just 
you know, because I, I do believe that there's something much bigger than myself. I just don't necessarily follow uh, the doctrine or, uh, you know, practice uh, Catholicism in a sort of um, more, I don't know, st- strict way. Wow. You and I are so much alike in how we see the church today. Um, yeah. I'll just, I'll share real quickly with you Please. that uh, about the time that the scandals were coming out around uh, the child abuse and all of the activity that the church was doing, particularly here in California around Proposition 8, I wrote mm-hmm. the bishop of the diocese I was confirmed in and renounced my Catholicism. I just could not... I could not be part of an organization that was that was so hypocritical, and I did it in a very public way. Um, but I have always said that my faith is very strong. It's just the organization that I cannot support. Yeah. And I think so many, um, thank you for sharing that. I think so many Catholics um, uh, and former Catholics, lapsed Catholics, whatever you want to call people with one foot in, one foot out, is they, they feel that, they understand that, You know, we're in a time where we have to move forward. You know, inclusion is the name of the game. Everyone deserves to be included in everything, you know. And if you really follow Jesus's message, you know, getting bogged down in interpretation of something that was written long ago by we don't even know who. (laughs) Let's face it, we really don't know. And it wasn't such an inclusive, um, you know, um, piece of work to begin with. Um, there's no female gospels, you know, there are women who were writing, there could have been female gospels. There's all kinds of people who were not included and to, to not be inclusive today is, is I think a great mistake, but more importantly, I think is, is the lag time it takes them to own stuff. It's like they, the church, and I'm speaking of course, more Vatican than I am the the, the parishes, as you so so uh, eloquently said earlier, but the thing is, you want me to step into a confessional and repent, and I'm willing, and I will make amends, and I will own my stuff. I, as a human being, totally believe in that. But the lag time for the church on a, on the you know speaking of the hierarchy, to do that, it takes so long. And I think, you know, what is going on that you're asking, you know. Uh, your your followers to behave this way, and yet it's taking so long for the leaders to do the same. So I feel like so many people are, are caught in that, in, including myself. Yeah, troubled by it. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, if if it ever happens at all, right? You know, there right. there's still so much we don't know, and there's still so much denial going on. Um, yeah, but yeah. How do I mean? I'm curious what you you would think if if the Catholic Church was affirming of same-sex attraction and things like same-sex marriage, and from the beginning of your childhood was welcoming and inclusive, how do you think things would have been different for you? And then I'll say for your dad. Would would your dad have been? Able, would your dad have gotten married? Do you think? Probably not. Mm. I would say if if he. I mean, obviously. You know, he he want he wanted kids, but I think my dad was really operating out of being. This is my opinion. I think my father's life was about serving the church, and I think the church was telling him and everyone else in the fifties, sixties, seventies that the best Catholics, the most worthy Catholics, were Catholics that were having a lot of kids, 
um, Catholics that weren't, you know, didn't, didn't use birth control. Um, you know, there were, there were like many of the things he was doing. Um, I think he was authentically a devoted Christian. And I think he authentically believed in the church. I don't think it was a game or a, or a cover. Uh, I think he felt he had to cover. And I think that if he were born in 2018 with all the same history, um, he probably would, I'm guessing would have, if he had kids probably with a man, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know, but I, and, and I think for me, um, I think I would have had a better shot at giving the church a fair chance because hmm. I think I, so early I didn't, I didn't just never really responded to it. I didn't respond to the rosary after dinner. I didn't respond. And also to be fair, my father's behavior, forget the sexuality, just who he was being at home. He wasn't kind to my mother. In fact, he could be quite cruel. And I do talk, write about that in the book, but you know, seeing that hypocrisy alone, you know, seeing him, the holiest guy, and then treating my mother like that, just that alone, I couldn't consolidate his, you know, go church, um, you know, mantra. Right. Do you think he would have been an alcoholic? Do I think he would have been? Do you think he would have been if the church were affirming? I don't think so. I mean, I know that's a bold thing to say because, you know, I don't, I don't have, you know, I'm not, I don't have all the answers. I just, you asked me what I think. So what I think is, yeah, I think that he drowned a lot of shame, pain, uh, denying who we are, whatever it is, sexuality or otherwise, you know, denying who we want, uh, what we want. I mean, is a very high price to pay. We all know that. We all know when we're not living our truth. Uh, we distract alcohol, food, TV, <laughs> you know, whatever, shopping. Exactly. We all, we all have our stuff. So, yeah. So your parents passed within five years of each other. Uh, you, yeah. write, you write about that. What was your relationship yes. with your dad in the end? Oh, it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. And, um, uh, you know, I write a, a last chapter of the book that jumps forward in time. Um, uh, and I, I won't share all of it because I think there's a lot of very, uh, I hope, valuable things. It's certainly the feedback I've gotten because um, you do get a chance to understand where I ended up and where they ended up and uh, some beautiful uh, healing and connection and um, forgiveness, which you know, is, is the name of the game. So uh, all of that. And with my mother too, you know, cause coming out to my mom, as I write about, there's definitely some challenges sure. uh, in that and, um, and her response. So all of that, um, is, is, was very satisfying. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Well, we will leave the story with the rest of your family and your mom to the mystery of the book. So people will read it. Yes. Um, yes. So talk about what are you doing now? Um, whoa, quite a few things. Um, I'm definitely look, I'm still on my, you know, press tour. So I'm busy, um, still busy with that. I am, uh, in the process of writing, producing, and then I'll be acting, um, in two different screenplays, 
Um, well, actually, I should say producing and acting in two screenplays, and one of them I have co-written. Uh, so I'm in the midst of some film stuff there. Um, and uh, thinking about my next book, <laughs> uh, probably pick up where I left off uh, in terms of the Vatican stuff. I think there's a big story there. Um, and just, you know, really enjoying uh, all this press right now. You know, um, the book is like number one LGBT memoir biography and also Catholicism uh, number one on Amazon and I'm just loving that these two worlds are merging uh, that we may have a chance uh, to, to keep having conversations that I can keep having these conversations like I did with you today about you know how do we how do we merge it how do we bring this together for those that want to be part of the church or any religion frankly Fantastic. Well, the book is called Hiding Out, A Memoir of Drugs, Deception, and Double Lives. Tina Alexis Allen is the author and wonderful contributor of this story. Thanks for sharing such a personal story about yourself um, and giving us an opportunity to talk about it. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation with you. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. And we'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Rick Dean, Executive Director of Face to Face. What if I told you that you could have peace of mind in just 20 minutes? and it's free. Face to Face offers free anonymous HIV testing with results in just 20 minutes. Knowing your HIV status can be life-saving for you and those you love. Visit Face to Face in Santa Rosa, call us at 544-1581, or visit us at f2f.org, ending AIDS in Sonoma County 20 minutes at a time. And that wraps up our hour. My thanks to Adam Rippon and Tina Allen for being with us tonight. I'll be back next Sunday night with an Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News in Depth. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at OutbeatNews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. And I rise up, I rise like the day I rise up, I rise unafraid, I rise up, and I do it a thousand eight times again. And I rise up, I like the waves, I rise up, in spite of the ache, I rise up, I rise like the day I rise up.
And the silence is a quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll take the world to its feet Move I won't dance Bring it to its feet And we 